My Year of Bad Sex, written and read by me, Jonathan Izard. Part 11. Hakim was my next bittersweet treat, a tryst with a twist. The main reason I liked him on Tinder was because of his extraordinary hair. I'd never seen anything so luxuriant, so impressive, so damn huge. It implied a confidence that was in contrast to the shyness in his large brown eyes. His skin was the tone of autumn leaves freshly fallen from the trees. It was, as far as I was concerned, a winning combination. And he was thirty-ish. Why he liked bald old me, I had no idea. Our online chat was polite and respectful, not sleazy or explicit. His English was good, although not fluent, and I didn't always understand what he meant without asking for clarification. It was the reticence and modesty that came across, not the self-possession and élan of his coiffure. We arranged to meet in Piccadilly Circus. He wasn't that familiar with London, so that was a famous enough landmark for him to find. Would Eros be a prophetic symbol for our meeting? "'How will I know you?' he asked. I laughed. <laughs> "'Don't worry, I'll know you.' With that hair, there'd be no mistaking Hakim. I took him to Patisserie Valerie in Old Compton Street, a perfect combination of camp and English. We were served by my favourite waitress, Isabel, who clucked and fussed in the way that she does with customers she recognises. Anyone else with those moody eyes and crazy locks might have carried them with arrogance or a certain swagger. Not Hakim. He was quietly spoken and coy, gentle and hesitant. He agonised over what to order— the muffin or the toast, the egg or the avocado. We had an easy chat with plenty of laughs. He explained that he was a graphic designer by trade and hoping to find work while he was in London. Aha! I know a few designers, one with his own business. My inner rescuer woke up and started to make mental notes of contacts for Hakim. Rescuer? Or nurturer, kindly elderly supporter and avuncular sponsor? Is it a bad thing to want to help someone younger, who's struggling to make his mark? His bashfulness extended to the way he often covered his mouth when he talked. Was it a cultural thing? No. I began to realise he was embarrassed about a discoloured tooth. Hmm. Did I know any dentists who'd do cosmetic work at bargain prices? Hakim explained that he was trying to find work in London in order to send money home. His mother had breast cancer, as my mother had done too and in Morocco, his home country, there was no state provision for drugs. His brother had sold his car to buy more medication, in the hope of keeping the disease at bay. Hakim had the offer of a job in Casablanca, but it meant a two-hour journey each way, and the pay was much lower than the equivalent position in Europe. Brackets. Let's have two minutes' silence for the days when the United Kingdom was A. United, and B. In Europe. And C. There was still a patisserie Valerie in Old Compton Street. Close brackets. His was not a sob story, but told factually. He seemed a simple, straightforward, honest and unguarded young man. I said I'd contact my designer friends and get in touch with him again. He finished his avocado toast, or was it the cheese muffin, and we went our separate ways. For now. That evening I went to my first naked party. About forty guys ranging in age from under twenty to over seventy, mostly white and reassuringly out of condition. 
Everything was relaxed and well-organised. Food, drink, and of course the hot tub in the garden. It was chatty, noisy, and the house was full of laughter. The crucial thing was that it was non-sexual. It was quite a naked week. The next day I went to buy things to wear at the Naked Badminton Group. I know, I know, let me explain. Trainers, really, as it's not 100% nude. Bollock naked, yes. Foot naked, no. Now, a sports shop on Oxford Street is not my idea of fun. I felt ancient, and longed for the days when assistants would bring you a sloping stool, measure your foot on a Brannock device with a bar that slid down a scale to rest on your big toe, and invite you to walk up and down. And in my childhood there was also space to do that. This was a cattle market of an operation, with a free-for-all style that favoured the brave and the sharp-elbowed. Youths with earpieces communicated with unseen colleagues, barking orders about styles and sizes and colours, and then boxes appeared, rising from underground on a conveyor belt that spewed the requested items onto a rack. Even catching someone's eye was an achievement. The mood was of emergency workers after an earthquake, barely keeping a crisis under control, plus pumping ballads of heartache and love. Eventually I found a pair that were sufficiently like trainers that I recognised, without too many extraneous bubbles and sponges and air pockets, and in a colour I wouldn't be embarrassed to have on my feet. These were whisked away from me, lest I nick them, I suppose, and taken separately to the bank of tills, where I had to identify them again, like collecting my babies from a creche and pay. Finally I left the shop. As I walked out onto the pavement, a young guy and I had one of those after-you-no-no-after-you-dances, dances, as we both stepped one way and then the other. Maybe it was this four-second pseudo-connection that he felt gave him permission to say what was on his mind. He looked at the box I was carrying, gave me a withering look of pity, and said with absolute disdain, Reebok, seriously? And he walked past me into the shop. I wanted to run after him and say, not for you, perhaps, but you're twenty and you're cool. I may be three times your age, but at least they're for naked badminton. Huh. The group was good fun and taken seriously with warm-up exercises and skills practice with a coach. It had been nearly twenty years since I'd played in a team to a decent level in the Surrey League, and some technique came back to me, but not the touch. A lot of shots I mistimed. Well... Plastic shuttles, darling. I'd only ever used feather before. It was a mixture of thrilling and frustrating, and all naked, of course, apart from my new Reebok trainers. But the naked aspect was neither here nor there, just not relevant. And since you ask, no, nobody I fancied. Oh, feel free to insert your own shuttlecock joke here. The venue was an old church hall in Pimlico, and only after the session did I discover there were no showers. Yuck! I had to settle for what the Greeks call an English wash, i.e. pits at the basin, as opposed to a French wash, which is a squirt or two of cologne. And then I set off for Nathan's birthday party. He was having it in a pub in Vauxhall, which is apparently a really well-known gay venue. Well-known if you're a young, pubby, clubby, gay type. Not if you're me. I'd invited Angelo in the hope that he might feel more attached to me as my plus one, but I'd also said to Hakim that he might like to come along and meet some people. As I wasn't sure if I felt that spark for him, I didn't anticipate too much complication. Or would they be jealous of each other, both vying for my favour and spitting Italian and Moroccan fury? No, they wouldn't. And they didn't. They only knew me, and I didn't know anyone else but Nathan, who was strutting his stuff on the stage, comparing some kind of competition. We formed a triumvirate in a corner of the bar. 
Angelo, sweet petite, Hakim, hair exploded, and me, sweaty and stinking, I suspect. What a catch. We chatted, laughed, and drank. I was the common denominator, and I made sure to include them both in all conversation. We talked about nursing, design, London, finding a place to rent, public transport, all kinds of things, but nothing saucy or raunchy. In fact, Angelo was soon tired and decided to leave. So, Hakim. I felt myself open and relax, and as we stood there by the bar, drinking and smiling with each other, I leaned in to hear his soft voice, put an arm around his waist, and let a finger stray into the waistband of his jeans. And thus it begins. We began to move to the music, face to face, back to back, and then Hakim turned around and shoved his ass into my groin, bending forward to grind against me, gyrating slowly. Okay, okay, I know it doesn't sound subtle. It wasn't, but I didn't give a fuck, although I began to feel that I might. Nobody else seemed to be dancing, but also they weren't fussed about us. We carried on with our own little dirty dancing routine, unbothered, relishing this unexpected intimacy. We didn't kiss or grope, we didn't need to. Everything was said in the touch, the rhythm, the new permission I had to play with his stunning wavy mop. It was naughty flirty, steamy louche. It only occurred to me later that the reason other people weren't interested in our antics was that they found us faintly ridiculous. Yes, I expect that's what it was. But fuck em. Boys just want to have fun, right? We carried on our private show for some time, rubbing and holding and smiling and stroking, my hands in his hair, in his jeans, his butt in my crotch, his eyes more bleary by the minute. And then he crashed. Suddenly, Hakim felt really unwell and needed to sit down. I got him some water and sat with him on a padded velvet bonquette. Yes, a bonquette that was velvet and padded. There's no way of using those words without it sounding naff, but it was that sort of venue, OK? He slid lower and collapsed, his head in my lap. I pulled the helmet of sweaty hair off his forehead and stroked his hot brow. He slept a while. Others saw us and gave kindly smiles, probably meaning, past your bedtime, is it? I smiled back as if to say, yes, don't we look adorable together? I was enjoying this role. I hadn't yet been able to get him a job as a graphic designer, but at least I could care for him in his drunken plight. What's he taken? Two security guards were standing in front of us, a bulky man and a slight woman, both with earpieces. They didn't think there was anything adorable about the tableau. Um, red wine, I said, remembering what he'd had at each round. I wasn't sure how many there had been. I later discovered he'd had several glasses before he left home to give him the courage to socialise. Oh, and what else? Nothing as far as I know. I bent forward, parted the curls and said into his pretty ear, Hakim, Hakim, what have you been drinking? Or taking anything else? No, he said, nothing else. If he can't walk and talk, I'm calling an ambulance, the square man snarled, his finger to his ear. Don't worry, I'll sort him out. I got it. They didn't want a drug overdose on the premises, so bad for business. I explained the situation to Hakim. He gave me a queasy smile of nausea and gratitude, and we got him onto his feet and then wove through the throng to the exit. On the street I hailed a cab, telling the driver that one of us is a bit fragile. He looked dubious but said nothing, wondering what he'd be mopping up later. I gave him my home address, my only thought being to keep this poor man safe. 
"'What am I going to do?' whispered Hakim as he slumped against me. "'You're not going to do anything. I'll get you to my place, give you plenty of water to drink, put you into bed, and you'll sleep and sleep and sleep, and in the morning you'll feel much better.' I hoped that was true. "'I'm sorry. I'm so sorry.' He crumpled further and was on the floor of the cab, his arms wrapped around my legs. I later found that he had been sick, just a little, down my jeans, and I didn't mind a bit. We got home, out of the cab, into the building, up in the lift, and into my flat, with a lot of support and encouragement. "'I'm so sorry,' he slurred. He asked if he could shower. Of course. I got him a clean towel and a new toothbrush, and helped him out of his clothes. There was something so simple and trusting in my undressing of him, nothing even slightly erotic about it. I waited for him to finish his shower, guided him into the bedroom, and settled him under the duvet. I put a bowl by the bed in case he was sick in the night, showered myself, and then got into the other side of the bed, leaving a healthy gap between us. We both slept for a long, long time. At some point our bodies rolled together, possibly accidentally, but more likely not, and we cuddled. Hands began to explore. I was aware that the toothbrush I'd left for him was still in its cellophane wrapping, so his mouth probably still tasted of sick. I confined our kissing to dry lips only. Anosmia can have its benefits. He did have a beautiful, smooth body, which I explored with my hands and my mouth. I lowered my trajectory and discovered a fine, uncut cock, and... 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 hang on. Something seemed odd down there. I tried to disguise my probing as sexual savouring, but really it was a reconnoitre, almost a medical examination. I don't mean it was a chore, no, I was having a ball, but just the one. Hakim, like Hitler allegedly, was monotesticular. My rootling and prodding prompted him to address the matter. Yes, he said, in answer to my unasked question. The other one never descended. I went to the doctor, but they couldn't help. A lot of men in my country are the same. Well, there you go. I'd known two men previously who'd lost a bollock to cancer. One had a rubber replacement, the other refused it. But in the course of a few weeks I'd come across first Harry, with his extra-large sack, and now Hakim, who was under-endowed. Ain't life queer? He was beautiful, but underpowered. His nipples were extremely sensitive, and when I licked and bit them he whimpered with delight in a feminine way. I turned him over, buried my face in his gorgeous bum, and rubbed my cock against it. No, he whispered, I can't. Condom. I stopped and leaned over to the bedside table, taking a condom and a sachet of lube from the drawer. It was over two years since I'd last had this kind of action with anyone, Nathan and the great grouting event, but I clearly had been living in hope. When I fucked him, the volume of his whimpering was turned up to a level of intensity that sounded like distress. He squealed and bleated like an animal in pain. I had to check several times that what I was doing was what he also wanted. The idea of being selfish to the point of abuse horrified me, obviously. But Hakim nodded and smiled with pleasure and reassurance, begging me to continue, his wild hair tumbling around his handsome face. Imagine I could bring him to such dizzying heights of ecstasy. I don't mean to brag, but I was pretty cock-a-hoop with satisfaction. I could really take pride in my work. From my diary December the 24th, 2018 
Today I had a long FaceTime call with Oliver in Japan. Five years and one day since he left me. I feel so terribly sad, really raw and fragile. Not because it was an unpleasant or painful call, quite the opposite. It was lovely, so tender and honest. We talked about his job and living in Japan. Then he asked about me and I said there were two headlines. First the colonoscopy next week to investigate this gut problem. And then, oh this is weird, it's, it, it's not a bad thing, it's that, well I, I seem to be, five years after, I seem to be dating again. Is dating the term? I, I suppose so. I haven't done anything for so long. I didn't wait... I didn't want to until a few weeks ago, and then I put Tinder on my phone and, well, well, you know. I burbled away, awkward, embarrassed. He listened calmly, which comforted me. I said I knew, well, suspected that he had been doing these things, dating for some time, and had spared my feelings by not telling me. Yes, he had, for five years, he said. Well, not since the day I moved out. He felt he'd like to have discussed things with me, but that would have been cruel. I thanked him for his sensitivity. He said, be careful meaning safe sex. I told him I'd only fucked two men since he left, one in October 2016, Nathan, and the other recently, Hakim, and I hadn't taken chances. I told him I'd met a few nice men for a coffee, and mostly they'd then gone back to Morocco, Hakim, or Brazil, Gabriele, actually we never did meet, or Canada, Kyle. I didn't mention the massages with Angelo. Oliver said now that he'd met other men he realised how lucky we'd been. I said, may be lucky to meet, but it wasn't just chance that created all the successes and happiness. It was bloody hard work by both of us. We earned those good times. He also implied it had some crap times, without giving details. I said that if anyone was treating him badly, I would go over to Tokyo and beat them up. I said it twice. I wanted to be sure he'd heard. We both acknowledged that, after dating other men, what we have, had, have, seems high quality in comparison. I suppose it's only now he realises it, in retrospect. He said he'd been very innocent a flower when we met. In other words, he knew no better and, I'm guessing at his precise meaning now, thought he could leave me and find someone equally suitable or more so. It sounded as if that hadn't quite gone according to plan. Life, eh? I felt protective. I think that's part of the PTSD. I mentioned rattling a bucket for breast cancer in Oxford Street. As I described the 99 out of the 100 who ignored me and then the impact of the 1 in 100 who did put money in the bucket, telling me their reasons, I welled up and wept. I explained that the fragility is always there, just beneath the surface. He didn't try to placate me or joke or say anything much. He simply listened as I talked. It would be better for me to cut emotional ties, to be free to connect elsewhere. That's what my friends think. You're keeping the space next to you on the bench free for someone who isn't coming back. In the last few months I've been trying to reconnect with others, but is that just physical affection without emotional intimacy? I know I'm looking for something, but what? I went to see a consultant at UCLH about my ongoing gut problem. She was a nice, down-to-earth, mature woman. I mentioned something about my gratitude for the NHS and how we must support it and value it, despite what this government is doing to undermine and jeopardise its future. I thought she'd be discreet and draw a veil over her own feelings on the subject, but no, she had a good old rant about underfunding and overworking and the impossibility of meeting unrealistic targets. She really let rip for a few minutes. It was good to hear her authentic rather than professional voice. 
I mentioned that the words urgent colonoscopy on my referral letter were somewhat alarming. She said, only three or four percent of patients tested have cancer. I'm not worried. You may not be, I said, stunned by her casual use of that word. We also had a few chuckles every time another unfortunate phrase slipped out. Taking action and not sitting on this. Going to get to the bottom of things. And me shitting myself with anxiety. Oh, always good to have a few laughs about the possibility of having a life-threatening disease. I went for a drink with Angelo. He is so sweet, but he doesn't want anything bilateral, only triangulations. We did a bit of window shopping in a couple of bars, Compton's and the Willie. No, no, get your mind out of the gutter. It's named after King William the Fourth, obviously. Nobody we saw fitted our joint criteria of old enough, but young enough. Next day I had a message from Angelo to say that Yoga Man was available and keen. I looked at the pics of him. Good body, but not particularly attractive. I'd have swiped left, but some Italian playtime was tempting. Yoga Man's name was Fahim. He came to my flat where Angelo and I were waiting. He was weird. And he never stopped talking. And worse, talking crap. Banal babbling about his dog, his partner, his flat, his job, his car, his dog again, and about sexually transmitted infections. A lot of words, but little meaning, like a child terrified of silence. Even while Angelo and I were massaging him, he was wittering on about his body, his gym, his sinuses, his favourite razor. He did have a good body, but, as with Jan, the only horny part for me was leaning over Fahim's legs to kiss Angelo and the most intimate part was sharing a smile and rolled eyes as Fahim blathered on. Fahim's cock got hard. I put my tongue on the tip. He was instantly alarmed. Not a full suck, he said sharply. Then he stood up and kissed Angelo for a while. On the bed, the two of them writhed and kissed some more, while I rimmed Angelo. When I rimmed Fahim, he pulled away, but he couldn't stop himself coming. I asked Angelo if he wanted to come. Mm, OK, he nodded. In just a few strokes I'd brought him off and sucked him dry. They both showered, Angelo left for his bus. Fahim delayed his exit by waffling on about diet and exercise and laptops and printers. I resorted to moving to the door to encourage his departure. As soon as he'd gone, I made myself a meal. Stir-fry tofu with vegetables in a hoisin sauce. At last, something genuinely tasty to savour. On December the 25th I went for a walk did a pile of ironing, had a workout at the gym, watched some TV and opened my cards. One was from Tom, the partner of my friend Billy. He told me that Billy had died in the summer from stomach cancer. I had no idea about the cancer or his death. He'd had the illness for three years, Tom said, and never complained. Yeah, that was Billy. A real force for good, always with a wicked smile and a naughty laugh. And he had had a real soft spot for me since we worked together in the eighties. We'd had a few years of being sex buddies. In fact, he was the last man to fuck me decades ago, and I'd actually enjoyed it. Just about the only man I'd trusted enough. Since then, I'd always been too self-conscious and protective of my damaged ass after the... after the... say it... rape. What an odd thought to have on hearing of a friend's death. When I was sending a few Christmas texts, his name was on the list, but I'd realised I had only a landline, not a mobile number for him, so his name had been left uncrossed out. But now he was uncrossed out in another way. Poor Billy. Poor Tom. I wrote him a letter and gently suggested a meeting, if he'd like that. 
people of quality are rare, and we must cherish them. I thought about Kyle, my sweet Canadian that I cuddled with and shared the bed, holding hands in the night, and I googled the cost of flights to Toronto. £460. Hmm. My Year of Bad Sex is written and read by me, Jonathan Izard. The music and studio production are by Andy Mills. My Year of Bad Sex is a protocol production. <laughs> <laughs>